I'm Shauna Swan, I'm a reproductive epidemiologist, and I'm really concerned about how fast sperm counts are declining. Um, I've been studying this for a long time, and I and my colleagues published a paper in 2017, which went viral when we concluded that sperm counts had declined over the past 50 years at the rate of 1% per year, basically been cut in half. And following that, we decided because of the great interest in it that we should expand that paper, bring it up to date. And so just a few weeks ago, we did that. We published the update of that paper. And so now we have more studies, a longer time period, and some new results that I think we'll talk about. So let me talk a little bit about those new results. So we added seven years of data, and that doesn't sound very much when you have almost 50 years, but it's important because it's now, and people are most concerned about what's happening now. And we found two things that are really important in this new analysis. The first has to do with geography, and the other has to do with rate of decline. So let me break those down. In our original paper in 2017, we searched the entire literature and got every paper that met our eligibility criteria, regardless of the location, but there were very few papers in South America, Asia, and Africa. And so that meant that even though we did publish those, we were not able to say anything conclusive. There was nothing that was statistically significant about the declines in those areas because there were so few papers. So that was a real important question for us on our reanalysis. Has that changed? And the answer is yes. Since we published that paper and since we, uh, and since the studies that were included in that paper, that first one, um, there have been quite a few studies published in South America, Africa, and Asia. So many that now we can conclude, yes, among men who didn't know what their fertility was, we call those unselected men, among unselected men who are, by the way, most representative of the general population, there was a significant decline in Asia, Africa, and South America. So now we can say that our finding of a significant decline in sperm concentration and count is worldwide. So that was a big change from the 2017 paper. The other change from the 2017 paper was actually how fast are they declining? So we concluded in 2017 that the rate was a little over 1% per year decline. Now, when we look in recent years, particularly since the turn of the century, the rate is 2.64% per year. That's more than double 1.16, which was the prior finding more than double the rate of decline. That is very fast and very unusual given that this is only in the last, it was 18 years from 20, 2000 to 2018, minus 2.64% 2 per year, extremely rapid decline. So the causes of this decline, of course, is the question on everybody's mind. Um, what's causing it and can we do anything about it? So. When we think about causes, we think, first of all, 
Could it be genetic? And the answer is no. And that's because it's too fast. So genetic changes take many generations. And we're looking at a little over two generations now, human generations. <laughs> and um, so if it's not genetic, then what is it? Well, the sort of the two baskets are gene environment, right? So that leaves us with environment. So what is environment? Is it just chemicals in the world? Well, that's certainly an important part of it, but also environment, if you think about the environment for an unborn child, for example, what is that environment? That environment is affected by many things that are going on uh, in the mother's environment, in the father's environment. And those are things like smoking. Did the father smoke right before he conceived the pregnancy? That matters. If the mother smoked when she was pregnant, that definitely matters. Um, did he drink a lot? Did she drink a lot? That matters. How stressed were they? How obese are they? How much exercise did they get? What kind of food do they eat? All of these things affect sperm count. And that's been published. I've published that. Other people publish that. It's well known. So those are lifestyle factors. Put those aside, and then there are, if you will, the involuntary environmental factors, many of them chemical, but not all chemical, by the way. So heat matters. The temperature actually matters. Noise matters, although not for sperm count, I don't think. But um, And then you have the chemicals. So the chemicals are all over the place, right? And there are chemicals in the products we bring into our house. There are also chemicals in our dust, in our air, in our water. So there are things that we can actually control to some extent by our purchases and you know what we allow into our house. Um, and some things we can't control. We really can't control the chemicals in our air, right? In our air pollution, <laughs> that's made up of chemicals. And, and, and what's in our water? Um, well, we can do something about that, perhaps by filtering and distilling and so on. But it's hard to keep track of them because they're just coming at us from all directions all the time. And among all those exposures, there's a class that's particularly important for sperm decline. So sperm are part of our reproductive system. They're germ cells that are produced by the reproductive system. Eggs also in the woman. So those germ cells are productions, the production of those germ cells is governed by hormones. It's governed by genetic programming and then played out via the hormones, the body's hormones, natural hormones. So that could be testosterone, it could be progesterone, it could be estrogen, and so on. And those sex hormones, if you will, are altered by many of these chemicals. So here are these hormones that are critical for the production of healthy sperm and eggs, and they're being interfered with all the time by these chemicals coming into our body through our food, our water, our breathing, our skin, every way you can think of they come into our body. And all the time they change our body's hormones. What chemicals are those? Those are chemicals in plastics, but not only in plastics, but plastics are big players because the products in them like phthalates and bisphenol, others are essential to the structure of the plastic. 
right? So if you look at a soft water bottle and a hard water bottle, it could contrast. So the soft water bottle is soft because it has certain phthalates in it. That's a hard, nasty word, but um, there it is. And <laughs> um, it's those are chemicals that lower our body's testosterone. I mean, that's big, isn't it? Men don't want to have their testosterone lowered if they can help it. And yet they're drinking from these soft water bottles and they're putting things on their face and on their skin that contain these phthalates. And this does measurably lower their testosterone. And when the mother is carrying a fetus and she's drinking from that soft water bottle or putting cosmetics on her face or perhaps getting these through scents, perfumes, wall fresheners, air fresheners <laughs> plugged into the wall, um, she's lowering her testosterone. And that might not matter so much for her, but it matters a lot for her unborn child, particularly her unborn son. And so back to the man with the soft water bottle, if he chooses the hard water bottle, then he's gonna expose himself to bisphenols. And that's BPA, people know that as BPA, or it's bad cousins, BD, BPF and BPS, which have been substituted. So the manufacturers can say this bottle doesn't contain BPA. <laughs> and it turns out that in a factory in China that studied men making bisphenol A, there were more complaints of erectile dysfunction. So in a way, this is a hard choice, you know, the hard water bottle or the erectile dysfunction. Um, so those are just two examples. Pesticides have been known and shown for just a long time now uh, to reduce sperm count even to zero. That's in adult men. And the good news is that if the man stops using that pesticide, his sperm count in about three months will recover. On the other hand, if the mother is exposed to these chemicals that alter her hormones when she's pregnant and the son is affected, he will not recover. So there's quite different impacts of what the mother experiences and passes on to her son. The father experiences and passes on to his son or daughter, by the way, because women are affected as well. Um, and um, what you do as an adult. So you have some control over what you do as an adult. And so when people ask me, what can I do? I can only tell them things that will <laughs> change their adult exposure. I can't, of course, tell them how to change their prenatal exposure. But if they're pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant, they can think about changing their offspring's exposure. So it's something we should worry about for ourselves and also for our offspring. And by the way, also for our grandchildren because it is passed on. So perhaps the area that's most sensitive to these phthalates when the fetus is in utero is a small area which is really amazing um, because it tells us what the mother was exposed to and what the fetus was exposed to in utero. And that's a black box. There's no way to know what's going on in the womb by direct measurement. But this indirect signal tells us how much testosterone that that little guy experienced when he was in utero. And the amazing thing is that it also tells us how he'll function as an adult 
Now, how can that be? Well, it turns out that the distance from the anus to the genitals, which is called the anogenital distance, is much smaller in females than males. I should say genetic females and males. And um, about 50 to 100% bigger in a genetic male than a genetic female. And that makes sense if you think about what it actually measures. It's a distance that goes, has to include all the paraphernalia <laughs> between the anus and the top of the genitals or the scrotum. So there's a lot in there for a male, much more than for a female. Because in the female, the organs are internal. But for a male, they're external. And that's why they take up so much more space, right? Okay, so in every mammal, almost, there are some exceptions, but in every mammal, we have this phenomenon that male distance called anogenital distance or the taint or the gooch or the grundle on the street, and I'll just call it AGD. So the AGD um, is a marker, like I said, of how much testosterone there was in utero. The more testosterone, the bigger the distance. If there isn't enough testosterone, or it comes at the wrong time, because your whole growth and development is timed and programmed genetically. So if the signal is, the cue comes, okay, testosterone, start doing your job at this time in development. If it's in the wings and not getting the cue, <laughs> it's not gonna happen. And then that genetic male will have an AGD, which is less than it should be. He'll be more feminized. So there are consequences. And it turns out that if a young man has a shorter than expected AGD for his size, for his body size, then he'll have a lower sperm count and he'll be more likely to be infertile. So this is undoubtedly part of the picture of declining sperm count and declining fertility, by the way, which has declined at the same rate as sperm count, about 1% per year. So what can do that? The chemicals we talked about, particularly the phthalates. So here's the whole picture. There's the fetus, male fetus developing around the first couple of weeks of the first trimester, the genetic signal is for the testicles to develop and start making testosterone. And here comes this foreigner, this foreign influence from phthalates telling the body, well, you don't need to make as much testosterone. We got it covered. They occupy the spaces, the receptors that <clears throat> the testosterone um, the androgen receptors, the testosterone receptors, they sit there and they say, okay, good, we're good here. You don't need to make any more. Okay. So then the body says, oh, okay, okay. Won't make any more. Then the AGD can, will stop growing and the boy will be under masculinized. And that also affects the germ cells that will go on to become sperm when he's a young man. And so they are impaired by this as well. And so when he goes on to be, you know, be in his 20s or whatever, trying to have a child, 30s, um, he won't do as well. His sperm count will be lower and he, he won't be able to do the job. So that's the story. So if we 
continue exposing ourselves to chemicals and we continue on this path that we're currently on, where does this all lead? Oh boy, there's so many consequences, Mark. Um, in terms of reproductive development, it means that it's going to be harder to conceive a child. And we know that's going on now because more couples are going to a clinic and saying, eh, we're not getting pregnant, can you help us? And there's various ways that medicine can help. Fortunately, that field is developing rapidly and, and, and there's a lot of very good things that can be done. Not without consequences, I want to point out. Um, one study, not very new actually, it's, I think it was 2008, showed that boys born to couples that had gone through assisted reproduction actually themselves have lower sperm count. So it doesn't, doesn't reboot <laughs> totally, it doesn't reset the system totally, but it does allow you to have a child, so, so that's great. There are also consequences to the brain, and we can talk about that if you want. There are also, um, yeah, I would say those are, well, there are also consequences to overall health because men with low sperm count die younger. So that's kind of dramatic. So sperm count tells us something not just about ability to conceive, but it also tells us something about longevity which is pretty important. And another consequence is that we are having fewer children in the world. That's what it means for the fertility rate to go down. And in some ways that's good. Some people say that's good and we can talk about that. Um, but um, the predictions by good demographers are that population will increase continue to increase as it's been increasing till perhaps, and the years vary with the demographer, 2040, 2050, and it will go down and it will never come back. The consequences of that are that we'll have many fewer young people to support the older people. So the old population pyramid, which was a very strong, big base of newborns and young children, supporting a very small peak of very old people, right? And that, that pyramid was actually an actual physical pyramid. You could draw it that way. But now, if you look at the population pyramids in, say, Japan, they're totally messed up. And the bottom is very small, and the top is very big because people are living longer. Japan has, I think, the longest life expectancy and one of the lowest fertility rates. So it's been inverted. And what that means is for the society is huge, huge, because you don't have the people to generate the products and the income that's needed for that society. You don't have the people to support, say, Medicare in this country, you know, um, and you just don't have the people to support the older people. And this is a, this is a s social problem that's growing and that particularly the Asian countries are aware of and trying to do something about. But the problem is, even though they offer economic incentives to people to have more children, it's not working. Why is it not working? Well, fertility rate goes down in countries in which women are educated. Okay? So as women become more educated, they enter the workforce, 
the couples have a larger income base and they don't want to go back. You know, why do they want to go back to very poor economic situation with lots of kids that they have to support to being much more comfortable having a, you know, jobs out in the world where women are respected and, you know, and so on and so forth. So there, it's, it's an indication of social change and social growth to have fewer children. And that's the trend. And people will not go back. Women particularly will not go back to staying home and taking care of five kids. This was the most popular question or comment on the last video. People said, oh, the population is going to collapse. This is a good thing. Is there any reason why this isn't a good thing and why we should be concerned about it? I think there are several reasons why we should be concerned about population decline. Um, the first, let me just say, population is made up of people and a basic human right, I feel, many people feel, is the ability to reproduce. And these forces, external forces, chemicals and so on, are limiting that right. Limiting our right to choose to have children when we want to and the way we want to. So that's one way that it's a bad thing. Uh, an another thing to point out is that some people say, well, this is a matter of choice. People shouldn't have kids if they don't want them. That's true. But I'm saying people should be able to have kids if they want them. And if you look at other species that have become endangered, if not worse, in the environment today, you see many, many smaller litters, smaller population size, and these animals are not choosing this. It's not because they have contraception available. It's not because they, they, they want to have a bigger income. It's not, it's so on, you know, obvious. And, and so they're exposed to the same chemicals we are. So if we want to know what's going on, I would say, look at the animals because we're part of that. The other thing is that, as I have said, if you shift the population so that there are not enough children available to take care of the older people, which is what is happening, then this is a very big social problem and a burden economically. How do you support the population? How do you maintain production if there's few people in those middle years that will be producing? So I, I would say it, if we want to look at where things are most severe, um, probably Asia and East Asia. And in countries like South Korea, South Korea, the fertility rate is below one child per couple. It's actually, I think, 0 0.89 now, um, which is historically low. That means that the average couple who should produce 2.1 children to maintain the status quo, right? Two people, two children, 0.1 for loss, um, is now 0 0.89 or 0 0.1. 
as it is in mu most much of uh, East Asia, and it's just not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. And there is um, many social phenomena that are seen in Japan right now, which are alarming that reflect that. For example, the phenomena of rent a family. Um, you can rent a family member if you, for an occasion, if you don't want to go alone to an event. If you want to be seen with a child or with a wife, you can rent a family member. This is shocking, isn't it? I mean, there's also a phenomenon in Japan of women marrying themselves. And this goes hand in hand with a decline in um, libido, which is associated with decline in testosterone. And we found, by the way, that in our studies, we asked women about their sexual satisfaction. And those who had higher levels of phthalates in their body had less sexual satisfaction. Um, the number of times that couples have sex has decreased. Um, there's a whole literature on that now. Um, so the decline, testosterone is essential for libido and declining testosterone, which is happening worldwide, um, is has consequences not only for population size, but also for population satisfaction. Both of those are going down. Is that shocking? That is really shocking. And I, I'm wondering, is, is this all by accident? This All these things that are affecting our libido and testosterone and sperm count, are all these things just kind of a side effect of incompetence? We just didn't know? Or, or do you think that there's any deliberate attempt to lower the population oh i don't think it's deliberate i don't think it's deliberate mm. no i think i think that uh i don't know about ignorance because you know people have been pointing this out i think it's economic i think that people who are manufacturing plastics and 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 pesticides and so on and flame retardants and on and on and on they have businesses and 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 people want these products because they're seen as modern and part of everyday life and necessary for our survival and it's kind of an addiction um and um and manufacturers are happy to to supply the the drugs if you will <laughs> um so i think we're we're a society now which is you know i would say addicted to these products, these endocrine disrupting products, and that addiction is being exploited. Um, by the way, the stock, the f feedstock for these chemicals is, you know, fuel. And the production of fuels, coal and so on, those byproducts are what's used for making these phthalates and bisphenols and so on. So the companies that you know, around 1950, when production started taking off, they had to think about what to do with the byproducts. And they put them into our everyday household products. And that way they could kind of capitalize on both ends, <laughs> make the fuels and then make money off of the byproducts. And that's worked for a long time until people started noticing that it wasn't good for society.
are, are people becoming aware and do you think through awareness we're gonna just through demand we're gonna say hey we don't want these anymore or do you think we need like regulation i definitely don't think that people will be just become aware and stop using things i think we're creatures of habit and let's face it these products are nice they're useful they're we're dependent on them so it's it's going to be we're going to have to find safer alternatives with which to make these products we're not going to stop asking for a disposable water bottle or something to line our frying pan so it doesn't food doesn't stick we're still going to want that right we just have to find ways to do it more safely and that takes a lot of work and money and regulation because why should people stop making products that sell very well for possibly better products that they might be able to sell to people that's not a good business model so unless they're forced to do that they're not going to change so when we talk about the possible connection between endocrine disruption and the LGBTQ spectrum, um, I like to start by segregating, separating the issues. So there's a condition called um, disorders of sexual development, DSD. There's a code for that, a medical code. And um, that can be fused labia, that can be a micropenis, that can be um, ovaries and testes in the same individual. Those disorders are not, by the way, usually considered on the spectrum, but I just want to start there. Um, and those disorders can be caused by endocrine disrupting chemicals. And a great example is the frogs that Tyrone produces by exposing them to atrazine, which is a pesticide. And he also finds them in the wild near fields that were sprayed with atrazine, okay? So there's no question that those changes can be caused. Okay, so let's move to the next category, <clears throat> which is the, the question of choice of sexual partner, the sex of your partner, partner choice, and homosexuality. And that can be caused by environmental chemicals. And again, the best example is these frogs that are homosexual. And Tyrone has lots of you know, photos of male frogs mating with other male frogs. And they're, the Museum of Sex in New York has a whole floor which is um, devoted to homosexual, homosexuality in animals non-human animals. Some of those will be naturally occurring and some may be influenced by environmental chemicals. We don't know, but it's certainly a phenomenon. The third category, if you will, is the question of gender choice, gender dysphoria. And this is much, much more difficult because we can't look to animal models because this is a condition of your how you view yourself. How do you feel? Do you feel you're in the wrong body? Do you feel that you should have been born a male when you've been, when you're a genetic female? Okay, so there's no way to ask an animal that, right? 
you ask your dog, do you think you would? <laughs> no, you can't do that, right? The, the closest, again, I talked to Tyrone Hayes about this, and I said, what do you think? And he said, he said, I don't know, but I can tell you that in the homosexual frogs that we produced by exposing them to atrazine, some of the males prefer to be a top and some prefer to be a bottom. That's the closest we can come to saying to an animal expressing their preference. And I certainly wouldn't say that's the same situation at all, but I'm just saying that's the a little hint that maybe there's something there. Other than that, I don't think we have any way to know. We could study this and we will study this. I'm sure I won't probably, but other people will, where you can take chemical exposure in the woman's body before she gave birth, follow those children until they're teenagers or 20 or 30 years old and ask them, ask them. That study has not been done. And that is an absolutely critical study to answer this question because without asking people, you're not going to answer this question. So I have to say, I just don't know, but I do want to say that the this is usually preceded by somebody saying, well, do you think the increase in gender dysphoria is due to environmental chemicals? And I would question the increase. Certainly there is more reported. Certainly there is more medical attention to it. Certainly, you know, it's in the political arena and it wasn't before, but that's happened for many things. And, and, you know, when I was growing up, nobody would consider talking about being born in the wrong body. <laughs> you know, being, you know, it was just not in the public consciousness. Individuals might have thought that, but they would not have said it. And so we're sort of hamstrung in a way. We can't turn to animal data. Um, we don't have a good historical record. So we're really starting our investigation now and we'll know more in another generation, maybe, but not now. That was a fantastic answer. And thank really, you, thank, you. thank I, you. That was probably the most informative I don't know I've ever gotten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, um, there is a, it's such a delicate, you know, because the, the problem is that if you ask, do environmental chemicals cause homosexuality, gender dysphoria, you're saying in a way those are negatives, those are illnesses, those are problems. Whereas people who are on the spectrum very often will say, no, it's not a problem. It's fine. I love it. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> What's the problem? You know, so you have to be very careful in talking about this, not to medicalize it and not to characterize it as a defect. And, um, and by the way, this is also the reaction of um, some Downs uh, families and Downs people, people with Down syndrome, and also people with um, ASD who would say, this is how I am. And I have a lot of 
you know, I get a lot of good things out of this and I, I don't want to say, was this caused by this problem or this problem? You, you see that it's, it's, it's very, just the, just the asking of the question has political implications. So be careful. <laughs> so I think it's always nice to end a video with um, a positive note. If people do want to have kids one day, if, if you're talking to a group of college kids and one day they want to have a family, what would you tell them? I would tell a group of college kids who want to have a family that they should think about what they're allowing into their bodies, even right now, in terms of the kind of food, the kind of drink, the kind of air, the kind of products they use in their house, cosmetics they use. Mostly just to be aware that it all matters. And they might not want to change, but they could say, okay, I understand this skin cream contains phthalates and those go into my body and they might affect my testosterone level, but that's okay because I really like this skin cream. Fine, fine, just be aware. I think more people that people can be aware of chemicals that we're totally blind to, the better off it'll be. And then I would say men should bank a semen sample. Why not? It's not difficult. It's not particularly expensive. Now you can do it in your home. There are companies that allow you to do it in home and mail in a sample. And I don't think it's going to get better in the short term, although I hope it will get better in the long term. But if you want to conceive a child in the next, say, 10 years, why not have a sample that's probably okay? And the same, by the same measure, I would say that every man should have his sperm tested. And if it's not great quality, then, you know, he can think about what to do to improve that in terms of his lifestyle, in terms of his exposures, uh, and so on. So there, there are ways to be active that way. A woman cannot have her eggs tested because they're, they're hidden. They're not available. So that's unfortunate. But if she's concerned, she can be checked for various conditions like, you know, the her fallopian tubes, are they open, and so on and so forth. So do a little homework ahead of time. Not that you want to get pregnant now, but you can go to a doctor and say, if I wanted to get pregnant now, would I be able to? Do you see any limitations? Do you see any barriers that I could take care of? And, and then, like I say, be aware of chemicals that are sneaking into our body <laughs> against our will and um, try to keep them away. Unfortunately, reproduction is not very much talked about or studied. You know, people are embarrassed to talk about their problems having a child. Women are embarrassed, particularly because they feel it's their fault. They take a lot of blame on themselves if they have a miscarriage or can't get pregnant. And if you look at research agendas, all the way up to the NIH, reproduction is not there. It's just not there. There's cancer, there's birth defects, there's diabetes, and there's neurology. 
But reproduction is a poor stepchild. And I think that's one reason why we know relatively little about it. And I think that the more we can recognize this as a societal problem and put more resources there, the better off we'll be. So I've really enjoyed making this episode of After School. I hope you did too. And I hope you'll want to learn more. And you can do that by reading our book, Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. Thank you.